to the RTI Time Machine. Today's time traveler is... John Van Trieste. And the destination... Southwestern Taiwan. May 26, 1636, was an important day in the village of Singhan. Records show it was on this day that a school opened in this indigenous village, the first of many set up through Taiwan's southwest by Dutch missionaries. When it came to their main goal, spreading Protestant Christianity, these schools didn't ultimately work out as intended. But the schools brought something else, something the students adopted and made their own. This was writing. And long after the Dutch were expelled from Taiwan, indigenous people kept right on passing down literacy to their children. So what was it they wrote down? A range of documents in indigenous languages has come down to us. And when they're lumped together, it's become a convention to call them the Singkan Manuscripts. My guest today, Li Ruiyuan, is a postdoctoral researcher who's worked with these documents. He's here to tell us what you can find in them and what this writing can tell us about Taiwan's past. Mr. Lee begins by saying that for most of history, Taiwan's indigenous peoples got on just fine, passing on their knowledge and stories orally. Some peoples use symbols to transmit information too, like the Bunun of the Central Mountains, who make calendars with images. But as we've said, in the 17th century, Dutch colonizers brought the Roman alphabet to Taiwan. Mr. Lee says, at first, Dutch missionaries lived for periods in indigenous villages, learning local languages, and coming up with ways of representing their sounds with the Latin alphabet. Once they'd got to a certain point, they then took to translating biblical and other religious texts into these languages. The colony's governors were, of course, commercially minded, interested in labor and resources. But Mr. Lee says the key motive for spreading literacy was still religious. The areas where writing caught on and stuck were generally those where Dutch influence was strongest, largely Taiwan's southwest, from Tainan south to Kaohsiung and Pingdong. The languages that show up in the Singkan manuscripts are largely those that come from these areas, Siraya, Taiwan, and Makadao. Speakers of these languages turn writing to far more worldly uses. A large number of the manuscripts are titles and contracts dealing with land. From the Dutch period on, large numbers of ethnic Chinese migrated to Taiwan. The indigenous peoples they came to live beside might not be able to read Chinese, especially the classical formal language often used in documents. What they could do was write down the terms they'd agreed to in their own languages, offering themselves some measure of protection. Some documents are a bit like rental contracts, allowing temporary use of land, while others are outright sales. There is more than just contracts, though. Other documents are lists of prices for different items and accounting books. All in all, the Singkan manuscripts show indigenous people buying and selling and drawing up terms, often with ethnic Chinese neighbors. One thing that's interesting about these documents is their range of dates. The first one shows up in 1683, the year that imperial Chinese rule began in the southwest. By this starting date, the Dutch had already left Taiwan around 20 years before. 
and the manuscripts kept coming. The last known document is dated to 1818, 135 years after the first one. Writing had really stuck around. What can these documents tell researchers about the past? One thing is indigenous ways of thinking and ways of making writing their own. Mr. Lee says one thing scholars have noticed is the way that speakers of the Siraya language wrote their numbers. He gives the example of the number 361. Today, most people would write it as the numbers three, six, and one, but speakers of Siraya had a different way. They didn't use places. They would write out 300 as 300, then 60 as 60, and then write the one. Mr. Lee also says that the texts contain loanwords from the Hokkien language, spoken by most of Taiwan's ethnic Chinese. In these texts, we can see indigenous languages taking on outside influences. There are insights into social norms and the role of women. In many contracts, for instance, the names of the indigenous parties are often female names. Mr. Lee says that ethnic Chinese women would never have been involved with contracts like this. Things like price lists let us know something about what daily life was like, and there are also some signs of scheming. Mr. Lee says that some contracts are flawed, with the ethnic Chinese party trying to take advantage of their neighbors through unfamiliar concepts like high interest loans. In short, these documents are a series of snapshots, fragments of what Taiwan's past was really like. How many of these manuscripts are there out there, and who decided they should all be called Sinkan manuscripts? Mr. Lee says it all started in the 1930s when a Japanese scholar called Murakami Naojiro did a study of more than a hundred of these documents. Since documents from the village of Sinkan were a major area of his study, the name Sinkan manuscripts stuck. Murakami said that there were still dozens more manuscripts he hadn't managed to collect. In 2010, Paul Renguay Lee, a famous scholar of indigenous Taiwan, did more work, bringing the number of recorded documents up to around 170. So Mr. Lee says, with this work, we have around 170 manuscripts that have been documented, studied, and translated. But others are still out there. In some cases, their owners consider them to be important family heirlooms, and though they might not understand the writing, they know that it's important. These people aren't necessarily willing to let researchers take a look at them. Why did new manuscripts stop getting made after 1818? Mr. Lee says this has to do with the takeover of written Chinese. Earlier, bilingual contracts had been common, but in the 19th century, languages like Siraya were eroding. As more people spoke Hokkien and used written Chinese, those who made new contracts likely stopped writing down terms in indigenous languages. Who holds the Sinkan manuscripts today? Mr. Lee says they're spread around the world. Many are owned by government agencies here in Taiwan, but others can be found at universities in Japan and the U.S. 
Why, historically speaking, are these papers important? Firstly, Mr. Lee says, they show lingering traces of Dutch influence in Taiwan. They also give us an indigenous point of view on ethnic Chinese migration into their lands. A contract or account book might not give us the direct view you could get from a diary, but these are Taiwan's first documents written in indigenous hands, and we can still hear the authors' voices today in things like their contract terms. Again, lists of prices and questionable clauses tell us about daily life and inter-ethnic relations. Lastly, Mr. Lee says, these are records of languages that have become dormant. Unlike the religious texts by Dutch missionaries, these were written by native speakers, and they concern everyday things, giving us a look at more natural language. They're a great source of information for linguists, of course, but they're also important to the descendants of the people who spoke these languages. Though they're not officially counted as indigenous people, groups like the Siraya have been working hard to revive their language, and these documents give first-hand information about how people used words and phrased things. In fact, despite a long hiatus, some people are writing in Siraya once again. For these people, the legacy of the Sinkan manuscripts is still present. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. You're listening to Radio Taiwan International. If you have any comments or suggestions about our programs, you can email us at rti at rti 